It will soon be a new year as uh, January approaches. It seems like it's getting here quickly. And uh, often at the, the beginning of a year, we have um, some forward thinking. We think about what the year may entail, what it may bring. Um, and as you think about the future, as you imagine a new year approaching, uh, what's your immediate reaction? Is there any anxiety? Is there any stress about what may come next year? Now, does your heart fill with anxiety as you think about this next season and what may happen uh, in your job or in your home, in your family? Uh, do you get uptight or worry a little bit when you think about the direction of, of our nation, of the country that we live in, and uh, the direction that we're headed as a, as a nation? Could it be that you find it easier to affirm the sovereignty of God theoretically than to rest in his sovereign, uh, sovereignty uh, experientially? And, I mean, if someone were to ask you, is God sovereign? Well, yeah, sure he is. But do you find it difficult... When you think forward a month, two months, six months, a year to rest in his sovereignty. I think the text that we're in this morning teaches us a whole lot. Uh, I'll point out three things in particular. I think first that it shows us that God is in control even when our circumstances suggest otherwise. Even when the things are are happening in our lives would maybe try to, to, to pull us away from that firm conviction that God is in control. Um, the second thing I think the text shows us is that God grants us wisdom to faithfully proclaim his word, to speak up on behalf of our our king, our savior, uh, even when uh, the circumstances are are not ideal, or the circumstances that we would have chosen. And then thirdly, I think the the, the text this morning gives us a warning as to the danger of not receiving God's word, right? On on behalf of the, the Christian, being obedient to Christ and his word, even after we've been born again, and especially for the, the person that's not a, a follower of Christ, to hear the word of God, to hear the gospel, and then to go away from it um, without action, without change, without submitting to it. And so we'll look at these in turn. The first one, that God is in control even when our circumstances may suggest otherwise. Uh, God is at work. We can trust that. Accomplishing his purposes even when we can't see him. His quiet Invisible hand is always at work, and we see this in the text. Uh, the text that our brother Ryan just read for us, and we'll continue in it, and I'll, I'll point these uh, observations out to you as we walk along through the text. Let me show you in the life of Paul, even in chapter 23, we're studying the end of chapter 23 and all of chapter 24. So we've got a lot of text before us this morning. I'll do a good bit of summary. Uh, but what we see is that last week, uh, in, in, in verse 11 of chapter 23, Paul is incarcerated. He is locked up in the barracks. And, uh, and when he's in that cell where he's bound and locked up, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in verse 11 and says to him, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So that is stated by Jesus to be the will of God. Paul, you will go to Rome and you'll speak about me there just like you've spoken about me here in Jerusalem. It makes it clear for us that's God's will for Paul. This is going to happen. Now, the day after Jesus shows up and encourages Paul's heart in those words, the day after, more than 40 Jews devise a plan to kill Paul. You heard Ryan read that in verse 12. It says, when it was day, meaning the next day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath neither to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Verse 13, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. So the fact that they swore not to eat or drink until they killed Paul, 
means that they were planning to do it pretty quickly. This was something they were going to they were going to get done pretty quickly because no one there wanted to miss too many meals on behalf of Paul's dead body, right? Over Paul's dead body, they they, they were not committed that much. And so this was something they were going to do pretty quickly. If you continue in the text, you see that they went before the chief priests and the elders and told them the plan. And seemingly the Sanhedrin have no problem with this plan. They're cooperating. And they agreed to act like they're going to reconvene. We're going to get back together and we're going to bring Paul before us and we're going to discuss this thing that Paul's done and decide his fate. Right? So that's the plan. And then out of nowhere, this uh, group that had sworn an oath to, to kill Paul, they were going to jump out, assassins, jump out and, and shank him or whatever the case may be and kill him as he's being escorted to this, this meeting where they were going to reconvene. Now, we know from history that plan would have appealed to uh, Ananias, the, the high priest, because he was an evil and corrupt man. But remember what I told you. The invisible hand of God is working. The hand of God is moving this whole thing along. And in a stunning twist in the story, you've already heard it read, God uses Paul's nephew, a young boy, to thwart the plan. Now, we believe him to be a young boy because of the way in verse 19 it says that Colonel Lysias uh, takes him by the hand as you would a, a small child. Uh, and we're not told how Paul's nephew hears this news of the assassination. Maybe uh, these, these zealots are so uh, overconfident that they're just speaking about this thing in front of him. Maybe they're just speaking freely. and He's just a young boy. What can he do? We're not really sure how he comes about this news. But either way, we're meant to marvel at the sovereignty of God here. The Lord often uses little things, even little people, to accomplish his purposes. Think about this. God's already promised, Paul, you're going to testify about me in Rome. That's my will for you, Paul. And yet he would get Paul to Rome, preserve Paul's life through the action of individuals. The nephew, here's the conspiracy. He goes and tells Paul. Paul acts wisely, and a Roman centurion does his job and reports it to his next in chain of command, and Lysias acts to protect Paul. There's no burning bush here. There's no Red Sea being parted. There's no miraculous walls falling down like at Jericho. And yet, God is still working. God's sparing Paul's life and moving him about his stated will for Paul's life through the actions of human beings. And yet, the whole time, God is, is sovereignly orchestrating this through the lives of others. God used the nephew, but God also used a Roman colonel, Lysias, to protect Paul as well. Notice this, when Lysias hears about the assassination, he plans and responds uh, accordingly. Uh, he makes a plan to transfer Paul to Caesarea. Now, verse 23, if you'll look there, uh, Lysias uh, enlists uh, 200 infantrymen, 70 mounted soldiers, and 200 spearmen to escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And when you think about that, it's an incredible image to picture in your mind. Uh, Paul just hours before this, was almost stomped to death by a mob of angry Jews. He was on the bottom of the pile, about to be stomped to death, and now he's being escorted out of the city of Jerusalem like a king. And we're reminded here, yet again, God is orchestrating all of this. God is sovereignly directing these things to happen according to his purposes. In order to bring... Uh, the governor, Felix, who we'll meet in a moment, up to speed on this situation. Lysias writes a letter. You'll find it in verses 26 through 30. We won't read the entire letter, but in that you'll find that Lysias claims that Paul is innocent, right? That's the, that's the, the takeaway from Lysias' letter to Felix. And uh, though Lysias himself 
only a short time earlier, was confused about the true identity of Paul. If you remember back to when Lysias first met Paul, he thinks he's an Egyptian revolutionary. He thinks he's an Egyptian troublemaker that's here to stir up trouble and to cause a riot. Though Lysias, only a short time earlier, almost had Paul, a Roman citizen, flogged to death illegally, he now claims in a letter to the governor that Paul is innocent. And that the problem surrounding Paul is, 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 is theological. They believe differently. It didn't warrant death or, or imprisonment even. And you think about that letter that Lysias writes on Paul's behalf, and it's really mind-boggling. For a guy who, who just even hours earlier couldn't have cared less whether Paul lived or died, he's now defending him. I think I told you already once this morning, God is sovereignly at work here. His hand is quietly moving all of these things to take place in a way where Paul's life is preserved and, 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 he, and his will is accomplished that Paul would testify in Rome ultimately behind the scenes God is even leading this pagan colonel to write a really providential letter. So the nephew thwarts the plan. Lysias reports the plan. Soldiers transport the prisoner. And all of this occurs under the sovereignty of our king. God has an infinite number. Here's the takeaway for, for us here today, believer. God has an infinite number of options for working his will out in your life. Will you trust him? While your day-to-day may not look spectacular, while the circumstances of your life may not have been what you would have chosen for yourself, the daily affairs of your life, trust him in all of those circumstances. And thank him for his provision, for his care. He's working behind the scenes in your life just like he was in Paul's, bringing seemingly uh, run-of-the-mill, everyday things together for your benefit, for your blessing, and for his glory. It's the way our God is quietly working behind the scenes, sovereignly uh, working out in in these details in our lives. Now, the last two points uh, are going to deal with chapter 24. In particular, the very last part of chapter 24. They deal with wisdom that God gives us to proclaim his word, any circumstances. It deals with the the danger of, of rejecting God's word, especially for the person who's hearing the gospel and, and they're an unbeliever. The danger there of rejecting God's word. But to get to those two themes in the text, we, we, need to get to, we need to see how Paul got there. We need to see what happens in Paul's life to get to those two ideas. The first part of chapter 24 reads sort of like a, a typical court procedure. We're not going to dig in and study every verse of that. But if you like reading or watching courtroom dramas on TV or, or podcasts, then this section of Acts is for you. It has all the expected elements there. It includes the, the filing of charges. It includes the prosecution of the plaintiff's spokesman. In this case, a lawyer named Tertullus. It includes the answer from the defendant, Paul. He gets to speak up on his behalf before this judge in this trial, the governor Felix. Paul's accusers were serious, right? These group of religious leaders in Jerusalem were so serious about making sure Paul is going to die or at least be put into prison so he can't continue to spread this news of Jesus that they hire a professional attorney, Tertullus, to prosecute him. And as you read the opening statements, look at verses 2 through 6 of chapter 24, you'll note several things. First, flattery is practically dripping from his lips as he attempts to make a favorable impression on the governor Felix. Tertullus praises Felix for great peace, right, that he's brought, which is just straight up wrong. It's, it's an error. If you look back at history, it shows us that Felix's reign was marked by constant unrest 
and riots and fights and anarchy even. And so nevertheless, peace, though, is a, is a major Roman value. And so Tertullus thinks he can sweet-talk him his way into a favorable decision. And so he commends Felix for it, even though there's been no peace during Felix's reign. Then Tertullus brings up the three charges against Paul. You see them in order there if you walk through the, those verses with me. First, he accuses Paul of being a pest. He calls him in verse 5 a, a plague, a public nuisance. Someone who would stir up riots for political reasons. This is the kind of guy we're dealing with, Felix. He, he's, a, he's a public nuisance. And then he gets a little more specific in his second accusation, still in verse 5. He accuses him being of, of a sect leader. He's a leader of the sect called the, the Nazarenes. He actually calls him the, the ringleader of this sect. It's the only other place, or the only place, that the, the word Nazarenes is used to describe Christians here in the New Testament. Tertullus calls him a leader of a sect. And then the third thing. And this is the more specific one. He accuses him of being disruptive in the temple. You see it in verse 6. But even if you notice in verse 6, the skilled attorney, he says he tried to profane the temple, suggesting that they can't prove anything. They can't prove that Paul has done anything in the temple to, uh, to desecrate the temple or, or to, uh, uh, to disrupt the courts. Well, these charges are given by Tertullus, and then Paul's given an opportunity to speak. And you'll see that defense there in the text as well. Note, though, in the defense, Paul not only speaks of his innocence, he not only defends himself and his actions, but he also uses it as an opportunity to share the gospel. He's like, I've got a captive audience. Felix and all these folks are here to listen. I'm going to share Jesus with these folks. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, in verses 10 through 21 is where we see that response, that defense from Paul. You'll note that he starts off by thanking Felix for the opportunity to speak and defend himself. But the difference is, when you compare it with Tertullus' opening statement, is that Paul doesn't flatter Felix and with some sense of a fictional justice or fictional wisdom, the way that Tertullus celebrated Felix's fictional peace. Paul just says thanks for the opportunity to defend himself, and then he moves into that defense, which you'll see uh, in three parts. I'm trying to walk quickly through these to get to the last half of chapter 24. You see these three parts of Paul's defense. Verse 11 through 16, Paul says, My religious record is clear. There's been no law breaking. There's been no religious desecration. There's been no law breaking as far as the way I've followed Yahweh. Then verses 17 through 20, Paul says, My civil behavior is blameless. I've not caused any riots. I've not been, it's not been my intention to stir up a, a mob or a riot. That's happened but it's not been because of, of me. And then verse 21, and this is the, the, the thrust of Paul's defense. This is where the rubber hits the road. Verse 21, he says, the, the issue is my personal message. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is where we disagree. Yes, there's been some disagreement, but it's been over this issue. I believe Jesus Christ to be the Messiah who died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead, and these guys don't believe that. And so everywhere I've shown up, they've tried to run me out of town. That's the thrust of his defense. And then verse 22. Look at verse 22 with me. It says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, meaning the gospel, the way of salvation in Christ Jesus, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. So that's the overarching story. I know I've done a lot of summary for you this morning, but that's what's going on. Paul is sovereignly moved by God from Jerusalem by an armed guard to Caesarea 
where he'll meet Felix, the governor. And there, when he stood before Felix, uh, he withstood the clever, deceitful attacks of Tertullus, the lawyer. And then after Tertullus has his opportunity, Paul makes a defense, stating that the real issue is belief in Jesus as Savior, as risen from the dead. Felix dismisses Paul, but keeps him under sort of a house arrest. He says, keep him in custody, but let him have some freedoms. Let him, let him have his needs met by his friends. And that sort of house arrest, is what I'm calling that, makes this next part, this fateful interaction between Paul and Felix, the governor, and his wife, uh, possible. This house arrest makes this interaction possible. And it's this interaction where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning making some application. Before we can do that, though, I know we've done a lot of summarizing of 23 and 24. I need to give you a bit of a background on Felix and Drusilla. You need to understand their story and where they're coming from to understand their reception of the gospel here. You see, Felix was the first slave that was ever made a governor within the Roman Empire. Yes, you heard me right. He started out life as a slave and ascended to the position of governor within the Roman Empire. And that would be quite an accomplishment if he'd earned it, but he didn't. You see, as a child, Felix and his brother Paulus had been freed by Antonia. Now, Antonia was the mother of Prince Claudius, who would go on to be emperor, be Caesar one day. And so they grew up, Felix and his brother Paulus, with Claudius, and they became close friends. Such close friends that when Claudius did become emperor, uh, Paulus convinced him, hey, make my brother Felix uh, some sort of official or governing position in Palestine. Just, just Palestine. It's nothing, right? And it happens, and, 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 and Felix becomes an official in Palestine, and to cut a, a, a long story, make a long story short, through some shameful and illegal jumping through hoops, Felix, Felix ascends to the position of governor at the expense of his employer. And during Felix's governorship, as I've already mentioned, insurrection, anarchy, dramatically increased. All of Palestine knew of his brutality as a leader. Uh, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus tells us that he repeatedly crucified leaders of different um, uprisings. The ancient Roman historian Tacitus describes his uh, leadership in this way. He says that Felix was a master of cruelty and of lust and exercised powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. And so there you have it from a Jewish historian and a Roman historian telling us that Felix was a brutal, scheming, evil ruler, right? Two ends of the spectrum there, a Jew and a Roman telling us the same thing about him. And then you have his wife, Drusilla. And she was actually his third wife, and Felix was her second husband. And uh, she was the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa I. And so when you hear that name in that family, yes, you should be alarmed. She's from Herod's family. And uh, she was originally married to the king of Emesa, a small town in, in, in small kingdom in Syria. She didn't find that marriage very interesting, very exciting, and so she won the affection of Felix while he was married through the help of a magician. And eventually she became Felix's illicit lover and quote-unquote wife, and uh, she was barely 20 years old at that time. Incredibly beautiful. Uh, her ambition and her lust equaled that of her new husband. But unlike Felix, she was raised as a Jew. You see that in verse 24, that information about her. She was raised Jewish, and at this time, though, she no longer has an active faith in the God of Yahweh, the God Yahweh of Israel. 
Now, I'll give you all that background because after verse 23, Felix and Drusilla leave town. They leave town. But when they come back, remember, Felix has already heard Paul's defense. When they come back into town, they sought Paul out. They found Paul. Remember, he's still under house arrest, so that made that possible. And you have this exchange between Paul and Felix and Drusilla, and it demonstrates to us, and I've already told you these, one, that God grants us the opportunity to speak his word in every circumstance. We see that in the life of Paul. God also gives us warnings as to the danger of not receiving God's word. And we see that in the life of Felix and Drusilla. So let's look at the first one. God grants us wisdom to faithfully deliver his word in all circumstances. Start with me in verse 24. It says, After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he, that's Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. We need to hit the brakes here for a second and, and make some application from these two verses. God grants us opportunities, wherever we're at, whatever circumstances we're in, to proclaim his word. And I think there's a couple things that we can draw out here in the example of Paul that we could learn from in, in Paul's case. First is this, the word is to be declared with boldness. Have you ever lacked boldness? So here's the thing. Either you guys are already thinking about lunch and the football game, or I'm the most blessed pastor in the world to pastor a church full of people that that never lack boldness. And I'm not sure. I do. I don't know about you guys, but daily almost, daily almost, I think, man, I missed an opportunity there. I was supposed to be bold there, and I missed it. I was supposed to share with that person. God put our paths to intersect so that I could tell that person about Jesus, and I missed it. I think if we're honest, we would all admit that we struggle with boldness. And to say, uh, to say different would probably be a lie. And to share the gospel when people cross our paths is something that that, uh, that lump kind of gets in our, our throat. And we know we should be speaking a good word for Jesus here, but I don't want to offend or I don't want to be made fun of or I might not have the right words to say or what if I can't answer their questions? Maybe they're, maybe they're like an atheist and they, have, they know all the, the questions to ask and I don't have all the answers. And then suddenly that, that boldness is, is quenched. The message here in, in verse 25 is not the message that this illicit couple wanted to hear. They, they probably summoned Paul, right? They're the ones that initiated it. They called for Paul. He's on house arrest. They called for him, probably expecting to hear some dissertation on, on Hebrew theological matters. Remember, that Paul's a trained Pharisee. She has a Jewish background. They're probably thinking, hey, we, this is going to be some entertainment for the evening while we eat our dinner. We can hear this guy talk about some deep theological issues in Judaism. Or maybe, maybe he'll break out his charts, his end time charts and graphs, and talk to us about the, the end of time. Even lost folks love to hear about the apocalypse, right? And it's not what they got. Paul comes before them, and he quickly went to their heart. And he comes before them, and he, and he starts preaching to them. I mean, just from the two verses that we have about their interaction, we can see that Paul, he, he pulls no punches. He, he shares Christ Jesus with them, and then the, 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 the results, the fruits of knowing Christ Jesus, he begins to preach to them. Now, church history nerd alert here. Um, I'm often told that uh, the, the historical examples and illustrations I give tip off my nerdiness, but uh, here's one of those times when I was reading this, and studying this text, it reminded me of Hugh Latimer. I don't know if any of you guys have heard of Hugh Latimer. He's an English reformer that was uh, burned at the stake for his convictions, uh, preaching uh, his convictions in Oxford University in, in 1555. 
I had the opportunity a couple summers ago to go and stand literally in the exact spot where he was burned at the stake. It was an incredibly moving uh, place to be and, and see the, the, the gospel stand that he took there and the, the, what he received as a, as a result of it. But Latimer, Hugh Latimer, often had the opportunity to preach before King Henry VIII. And on one occasion, Latimer offends King Henry with his boldness. He's preaching, and, and King Henry's offended. And so King Henry brings him before himself and says, Hey, Latimer, next Sunday, you're going to stand before the people in the pulpit, and you're going to make a formal apology for what you've said that offended him. And so the next Sunday comes around, and after reading the scripture, Hugh Latimer uh, stands in the pulpit, and he addresses himself. He's speaking to himself in the third person. And this is what he said. It's kind of old English, but, but bear with me. He says, Hugh Latimer, speaking to himself, Dost thou not know before, before whom thou art standing this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that you speakest no word that may displease. But consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholdeth all thy ways, and is able to cast thy soul in hell? Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And after making that statement, Hugh Latimer continues by preaching the exact same message he preached the week before that offended King Henry, except for this time he does it with more energy and more passion, knowing that he might be killed for it, and in fact eventually is. And I read that, and I see Paul demonstrating that same sort of boldness in the text this morning, that he knew, he knew Felix could have him killed. Felix's, his fate rests in Felix's hands, and in an instant he could have been killed, and yet he's still committed to preaching Christ Jesus when he has an opportunity. And so this text this morning should, uh, by the Holy Spirit's work through it, bring us to a place of boldness. It should, it should awaken in our hearts a passion and a desire to, to have that kind of courage in our workplace and in our community and our home. A lot of us will see family members this Christmas that we don't see very often. Folks that don't know the Lord, that don't walk with the Lord. And I pray a text like this would, would encourage us, would give us boldness to share even with family this Christmas. The second thing we note here in Paul's sharing, and not only does he share with boldness, he proclaims the word with straightforwardness. Look at verse 24 again. Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. So they came to be entertained. They ended up hearing the gospel. Paul didn't beat around the bush about it. He got their attention with a clear presentation of Jesus. Now, from the rest of the text that, that we've already mentioned this morning and read this morning, we can tell that Paul's point was faith in Jesus Christ, the gospel. You need to believe upon the one who's risen from the dead and conquered death. Put your faith in Jesus. But doing that... Is going to bring about change. Your lives will change. He understood. Paul, Paul got it. He understood their vain pursuits. He knew their, 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 their life of unhappiness and, and, and discontent. He knew the, 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 the way that they were looking for love in all of the wrong places. He understood the sleepless nights, right, of being, of being lost and, and not having eternal hope. He understood their brokenness and their emptiness apart from Christ. And he, he's making the point, Jesus Christ can make the difference. Jesus Christ, being born again, can change your life, Felix and Drusilla. This is the truth he's sharing with them. And so as a result, notice verse 25, he emphasizes a few things. It says he reasoned with them about righteousness. Salvation results in righteousness, right living. Now, no doubt his emphasis here is upon God's holiness, 
the holiness that God has and the holiness he expects of us as his people, Paul pulls no punches here. He explains, no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. He explains to them, the wrath of God is revealed, against, revealed from heaven against ungodliness. Romans 1.18. The same Paul that wrote those verses in Romans is the the Paul that's preaching to them. No doubt sharing with them, you're not righteous. God is. And for that reason, you're separated from him. He also reasoned with them about self-control, the text says. This probably taught Felix and and Drusilla the same way that he taught the Galatian church in in chapter 5 of Galatians. That this sort of self-discipline, self-control is only accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so your life, Felix, your life, Drusilla, it doesn't look like self-control. It doesn't look like discipline. And the reason being is because you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. We only have one verse here, and so we sort of have to fill in the blanks. But the, the, the clues that were given us in the text, we see exactly what he's talking about. And then finally it says he reasoned with them about the coming judgment. This is Paul clearly warning them that they would not escape divine accountability. There is a day, Felix, there is a day, Drusilla, where you will stand before this holy God. You are separated from him and you will be cast into eternal hell because of the choices you've made, because of rejecting Christ, the one who's died on your behalf. He's preaching Jesus, even though he can be killed for it. We know from his later writings that Paul taught that God would not only judge outward actions, which were clear in Felix and Drusilla's life, but also their hearts. So they stood with no defense. They stood with with no alibi before a holy God. Paul is incredibly clear and straightforward. He desired to see their eternal souls saved. To see them give their lives to Jesus, the one who could atone for their sins. And so he didn't soft pedal the gospel. He didn't beat around the bush. He told them about the king, King Jesus, who died on their behalf. We need to take a cue from, from Paul here. Proclaiming the gospel must include the bad news of the lostness of man and the reality of God's perfect holiness, right? It must include. When we understand the bad news that we're separated from a holy God because of our sin, only then can the good news be truly good. Namely, that Jesus came and died in our place, not just to forgive us of our sins, but so that one day when we stand before that holy God, we're given Christ's righteousness and we stand before that God as if we lived Jesus' life. Jesus lived ours, he, we lived Christ's life, and when we stand before our Father, He looks at us as if He's looking at His Son. Not only forgiven, but righteous. That's the way He looks at us. Just as if we lived Jesus' life. And if we neglect communicating that, communicating that truth, that we're lost, that we're broken, that we're separated from a holy God, we're not preaching the authentic gospel. A partial good news is no good news at all. Well, how did all of this affect Felix and his lover? Did they respond with contempt or mockery or contemplation or confusion? Well, in Drusilla's case, we can't say for sure. But regarding Felix, the text is clear. Verse 25 says, Felix was alarmed. The Greek word here in the text is literally translated terrified. Felix was terrified. As Paul is standing before the most powerful man that he's ever stood before and he's sharing the good news of Jesus, he looks into his eyes and he's terrified. This was the defining moment of Felix's life. He just heard the good news of Jesus. What would he do with it? This was, you could say, the continental divide in Felix's life. His life is being weighed on the scale of God's holiness, right? 
Paul's just explained the gospel. He's just explained the, the, the unrighteousness, the sin, the filth that characterizes our lives as human beings. And for this very moment, he looks into Felix's eyes and he's terrified and the scales are just sitting there teetering. What will Felix do? Will he make the choice of, of believing repentance or will he continue in rejection? And he's hesitating right there in that moment. And then Felix says this, verse 25, Felix was alarmed and said, go away. Go away for the present, and when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. And in a very real sense, Felix's soul died in that moment. He had the decision. He had the truth of the gospel. And the Lord, we know from the text, is weighing upon his heart with the truth of the gospel because there's fear, there's, there's, there's terror in his eyes because he understands the weight of it, and it's teetering there for a moment, and then he says, go away. Go away. We don't know if the Holy Spirit ever prompted or drew Felix again, but in that moment, the Holy Spirit was drawing Felix, and he rejected. And this is an eternal tragedy. An eternal tragedy. Which leads us to the third point in the text this morning, that God gives us warnings as to the danger of not trusting him, not believing the gospel. Listen, in this text today, this is not just Felix's story. Felix, this is not just Felix's eternity that we're watching slip away before us in the text this morning. If you're here today and you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, this is your story. This is your eternal tragedy as well. But listen, friends, it's God's grace to you that in this moment you're hearing the gospel. You're hearing Felix's story and you're hearing this warning of, of God to you that this is God's word to you presented to you today. This is grace to you that you would be here in this moment hearing this truth. Notice, Felix didn't say that he never wanted to hear Paul again. Get away from me. I don't ever want to hear this truth again. He just made the fatal error of procrastination. I'll call you when I have more time. I'll hear you again, but not right now. Don't make that mistake. Don't say, I have plenty of time. I can come to Jesus later. I have a life to live. I have time before me. I'm young. I still have years. I'll make this decision later. When God's word comes to us with convicting power, we must never put off the response for several reasons. I'll give you a couple here from the text. A couple reasons we shouldn't delay when God's word is weighing on us with conviction. The first is this. Though you may hear the same truth again, it may not bring the same conviction again. And this was sadly true of Felix, who sent Paul away, saying that he would call on him another time. I'll call you again, Paul. I'll call on you. And from the text, we know that he did. He did call on Paul again. Look, continue reading with me in verse 26. It says, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius, Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. So from the rest of this text, we see that Felix did indeed frequently talk with Paul. And you can bet, based on knowing who Paul is, he didn't back up from sharing Jesus with him. But he only trembled once, at least according to the text. He only trembled once. Repetition often dulls truth's potency. Hearing it again and again and again. It's possible that some of you have heard the good news of Jesus for years and years and years and you greet extraordinary truth with a yawn. God forbid that if in this moment he's weighing on your heart, don't delay. Because you may hear the same truth 
And the Spirit not convince you of its power. The, the, the Spirit of God may not convict you in the way that you are in this moment. And so if you're hearing the gospel and he's convicting you of its truth, repent and believe today. You may get another opportunity to hear the word. But the Spirit may not lay it on your heart in the same way. Second reason we shouldn't delay in receiving the word is this. Truths not acted upon can harden us so that we cannot understand them. Matthew 13, 13, Jesus says this himself. Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This is exactly what happened to the Pharisees. They had Jesus himself as a teacher. And they were hardened to the truth of the gospel. They were hardened to the truth of the Messiah. Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 13, the same passage, For the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. My point is this, when you come under conviction, when you're hearing the truth of God's word, and the Holy Spirit is convincing you of its power, of its truth, act immediately or suffer spiritual loss. If the Spirit is prompting you as a believer to teach, take the first steps. Go talk to one of the elders and talk to them about the opportunity to teach. The Lord may not convict you in that way again. If, if, if the Lord is prompting you to give financially to Lottie Moon or to the, to the church or to a family in need this Christmas, do it. He may not convict you of that truth again. If the Lord is prompting you to some ethical or social involvement, act upon it. Respond in obedience. The Holy Spirit convicts us. For a reason. Listen, one, I believe one of the reasons the, that, that some evangelical churches today have such a weak social and ethical witness in the world today is because they've ignored God's voice for so long they don't hear it anymore. They've become numb to it, cold to it. They wouldn't know it if they heard it. John Piper, I think, hits the nail on the head when he says this. We live to get attention for God. If we don't live for God's glory, we become simply a little echo of a God-neglecting culture. We fit in so well to this world that we can't direct anyone's attention out of the world, which is where God is. We're just so afraid of not being in step that we blend so well that no one is saying, Wow, look how good God is. You're a people for God's own possession, not for anyone's possession down here. He calls you out of darkness because you're God's. You belong to God. So how do we get there? How do we get to a place where we're living for this world or living for this life and and rather than directing people's attention out of this world to where God is, how do we get there? It happens with individuals, with each of us. When we hear God's word, we're convicted by it, but we just tuck it away instead of acting on it. Well, that was nice. Man, the Lord, Lord really did something today. But instead of acting on it, instead of being obedient, we just... And I, was, I liked the way that felt. Lord, man, the Lord was really heavy on my heart today with this, this truth of this thing he was convincing me of. If God is speaking, we must act. And if the, if the classic example that we get from Felix here, if this is the classic example of what not to do in the life of Felix when we hear God's word, contrast Felix here with the example that we see of the Philippian jailer. Right? If you can remember that far back, I know that's difficult. The example of what we should do when we hear God's word. Contrast what we see here of Felix in chapter 24 with what we see of the Philippian jailer in chapter 16, right? Their response, if you go back and read those verses in verse 30 of chapter 16 with the Philippian jailer, their response is, is, is fear. The language in the Greek is almost identical. They both were terrified when they saw or heard what was said or done in the case of the Philippian jailer. However, their, their result, their, their response to it was different. 
Instead of delay, which is what Felix chose, the Philippian jailer, his fear catapulted him into eternal life. He went before him and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? They shared the gospel with him. He believes and he's baptized. My point is this. Responding to God's appeal brings new life. Responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit brings new life. Delay results in eternal death. Rejecting the truth of the gospel results in eternal death. Or in the case of the believer, if we delay or if we reject the prompting of the Holy Spirit, even as a believer, then it leads to an unfulfilled, disobedient Christian life which is miserable for the believer. To, to, be, to be born again and yet walking unfaithfully, to be walking away from the calling that the Lord has on your life, it's miserable. Sadly, Felix isn't the only person to care more about his career or wealth or this world than salvation in Christ. Jesus says, Mark eight thirty six. he says this is a common but unwise choice. He says, what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? So I think Jesus would point us to Felix this morning and say, Here's an example. Rejecting Christ. I beg you, church family, listen and learn from Felix. Time isn't on our side. Repent and trust Christ while there's still time. As a believer, tell others about King Jesus in boldness and with courage as we still have opportunity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's life for us, that as believers... Through it, you bring conviction. That through it, you lead us in truth to, to know who you are and how to respond obediently to who you are. God, I pray for every believer in this room this morning that if there's someone on our hearts, maybe someone even in our own families, that will see this Christmas season at family gatherings. God, I pray that person would come into our heart and mind at this moment. And God, you would lead us by the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit to be obedient to be bold, to be straightforward and clear with the gospel. God, I pray if there's someone or a family or even many here this morning that don't know Christ, that have never repented and trusted Christ for salvation, I pray the truth of the gospel that Jesus died on their behalf would so grip their heart this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit, they would yield themselves unto you, King Jesus, and repent and believe, and that for the first time, they would know life and life abundantly. God, I pray today would be the day of salvation for someone. God, pray that you would draw to yourself men and women, boys and girls in this room, and that our response would be obedience and not delay. God, we give you this time. You work in our hearts as we respond to your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.